Thank you for tuning in to the Everyday Christian Podcast, a work of Scattered Abroad, which is overseen by the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. You can find our website at scatteredabroad.org. In this podcast, we show that God deserves every praise from every creature every day. Here is your host, Chase Green. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of the Everyday Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Green, and today we continue our discussion with Brett Rutherford from last week on the evidence for Noah's flood. Before we get into that, I'd like to highlight one of our Scattered Abroad Network podcasts, and today I've chosen to highlight the Diligent podcast with Joshua Cantrell. Joshua Cantrell talks about the Bible, he speaks the truth, and he makes the Bible come to life in the Diligent podcast. So I hope that you will check that podcast out. You'll be greatly benefited by doing so. And this podcast comes out on Saturdays with the Scattered Abroad Network. We've been discussing with Brett Rutherford about the flood and evidence for it. We've been talking about the importance of accepting the facts regarding the flood as told in the book of Genesis. And we're going to move into a discussion of uh, geologic evidences, and other evidences for Noah's flood this week on the Everyday Christian Podcast. So I hope that you'll tune in and that your faith will increase by listening to what Brother Brett has to say about this important subject. What about not just a geologic perspective, but what about somebody who's a skeptic who says that the ark couldn't have been big enough to contain the animals needed to repopulate the earth. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned the book, The Genesis Flood, uh, by Wickham and Morris, uh, and he deals with that particular issue quite well. And, of course, he points out, uh, they've done all the the studies and the evaluations concerning uh, the animal populations around the world, and they've determined that the average size of an animal would be about the size of a sheep. Um, and when you think of a sheep, a sheep is about the size of maybe a, a medium to large size dog, uh, if you put it that way. Uh, and really, if you're talking about all of the animals in that way, then of course they're not, they're not that big and they wouldn't take up a great deal of room either. And so also you're dealing with the uh, kinds, you're dealing with the, the foundational species of a group of animals. You're not dealing with every breed. Right. Noah didn't take in every breed of dog or every breed of cat or whatever the case may be. Uh, he took in the, the uh, genetic parents, I guess, of the, the various modern uh, breeds and types that we have today. And so I think they've determined that all dog species, uh, you know, eventually uh, descended from the wolves. So he would have only had to have taken uh, two pairs of wolves into the ark. And, of course, uh, we get our various uh, uh, breeds and so forth from that. It's hard to believe when you look at a chihuahua that it comes from a wolf, but genetically it's connected. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, you look at that, and uh, I think that's the problem. People think that you had to take every single uh, type of animal, every single breed, everything, you know, but that's not what the Bible means. Uh, it uses the term kind. And, right. of course, uh, easily fit into the dimensions that, Right, so those dimensions are 300 by 50 by 30 cubits, which if we're using a 17 and a half inch cubit, 
that would be 437 and a half feet long by 72.9 feet wide by 43.75 feet high. Now, I've actually been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, and that is a massive, uh, massive boat. And he built that to the specs of what is mentioned in the Bible. And it's amazing because you walk through there and you see uh, all the various living quarters that they could have put animals in. And they've got models of animals in there. And it's truly amazing. There's lots of storage in there for food. And uh, they showed you how Noah might have made made rain catchment systems that would uh, pipe water in and, and even like ventilation and things. It's really amazing thing to see. Uh, if one ever gets to go up there to Kentucky and see that. Um, and then, like you said, with kinds, uh, very easily uh, shows us that uh, you don't have to have every single breed of an animal. You just have to have their individual kinds. And then through uh, genetic uh, modifications, uh, whether it be natural or, or breeding type programs, uh, down through short, amount, um, short periods of time, you can have the variation uh, within their genome that is expressed in various breeds. Uh, but also this, uh, who's to say that Noah didn't take juvenile animals on the ark? Uh, it doesn't say that he had to take adult animals, which would have been larger. He might have taken small ones, and then after they got off the ark, they came into adulthood and, and reproduced and so on. So that's another point I think is uh, an important point. I think that is a good point. I think that particularly when you're talking about the larger animals, like elephants, of course, uh, dinosaurs. You've talked on another uh, podcast about dinosaurs. Of course, we know that they'd be quite large, and people assume that you couldn't fit the dinosaurs on the ark. Well, you could in the infant form, of course, right. or uh, as, they, as eggs, uh, even uh, take those eggs on the ark with you, and obviously they wouldn't take up much room. Uh, the other factor, of course, that sometimes we don't think about is uh, the miraculous side of things. Uh, so uh, this, of course, was a plan of God, and a God, of course, who's capable of creating the world and creating these animals is also uh, capable of uh, doing uh, various miraculous things in order for these um, animals perhaps to, to live in some kind of um, stasis and to, while they were on the ark, you know, uh, some sort of suspended animation. I don't know. But anyway, all of the, the possibilities are on the table that you put God in the uh, uh, picture. So I think sometimes we forget about that. We're trying to look for, you know, a logical, scientific answer to some of these things. Uh, but you can't explain everything away in the Bible uh, through science, uh, through, you know, what we observe today, uh, because uh, miracles are something that uh, did occur those who put our faith in the Bible. Uh, and so God is also a factor in this, and we don't know what he did as well uh, to uh, keep those animals calm uh, to help Noah out, and also, of course, uh, perhaps uh, keep them from growing or hatching. Uh, right. I don't know, uh, whatever the case may be. But that's certainly an X factor, I guess you might say, that we don't often consider. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, animals were a lot more docile uh, before the flood anyway, and it appears that they didn't eat one another yet until after the flood. Yeah, that's right. That's so that's another point, too. Uh, but, right, but absolutely, God 
uh, could have put in a, a miraculous type hibernation or you know he could have done anything if he can cause a, a flood to overwhelm the entire earth he can do anything and that's you know that's his omnipotence uh, he's all powerful so we want to uh, now offer some examples of geologic evidence if we can uh, some things that evolutionary geologists would claim happened over millions of years, but we could explain as having uh, been caused by the flood. Uh, can you think of any examples like that? Well, I think um, maybe this is not necessarily connected to that, but uh, partially. When you talk about fossilization, of course, we've got mass fossilization all over the world. Uh, and, of course, fossilization is in various stratas of the Earth. It doesn't make any difference. Sometimes it's just on the surface of the Earth. Uh, but when we talk about fossilization, fossilization is something that happens suddenly. It's not something that happens over a gradual period of time. If you've got an animal that dies, for example, then obviously there's going to be predators who will take that carcass away. They will rip it apart. They will consume it got uh, certain carnivores that are really designed to even destroy bone. Uh, so we've got one here in Tasmania called the, well, the Tasmanian Devil, uh, which everybody knows well uh, from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. He's a, he, he tears, he's a scavenger, and he destroys bone. Uh, so his jaws are made for that. So if you don't quickly cover a body, uh, then of course it's going to be destroyed by the elements, it's going to be destroyed by scavengers like the Tasmanian devil, it's not going to exist. So, uh, when you have fossilization, it's got to be covered suddenly uh, by silt. It's got to be covered by mud, more or less, um, in order to protect its integrity. And then the fossilization process can occur. So, fossilization is actually a sudden process. So, we see all these fossils around the world. We see, you know, these dinosaur fossils. So not just dinosaurs, but all kinds of uh, animals and uh, sea life and so forth that's uh, been suddenly fossilized. And um, we wonder how that's possible. Well, it's possible if you've got a universal flood. So if you've got a flood that will lay down a layer of silt, obviously it would cause mass destruction among uh, along the world, but also mass destruction among the animal world. So obviously those animals that weren't taken on the ark uh, would be covered with this layer of silt, which is often the case uh, with floods. Uh, the ancient Egyptians, they depended upon the annual flooding of the Nile River, and it would lay this beautiful layer of silt, uh, and as the flood waters retreated, it left this beautiful silt behind. Uh, and so uh, they could do their farming, and they would have of uh, course, very prosperous crops as a result of this silt left by the flood. Well, that's what floods do. Uh, so they spread out mud and they leave it. And, uh, these animals that are killed suddenly by the flood would be covered by uh, silt as the flood retreats, and that would cause fossilization. Fossilization is not a gradual process. It's an immediate process uh, that begins immediately uh, when uh, carcasses are covered by uh, mud or silt of that nature. So I think when you look at that and you see the widespread uh, fossilization around the world, I think that's more evidence for a flood than anything else. Right. And for a fossil to form, don't you need, in addition to the silt, uh, intense pressure 
and maybe heat and kind of a compacting of it together, uh, like a cementing of it together. That's right. So, uh, those are important elements uh, that come, and that's, of course, uh, makes the difference between whether an animal is actually turned into a fossil or not. There's a number of factors that must take place, but the initial factor, of course, is dumping that silt immediately on a carcass. Right. So that has to be done. Right, uh, before it has time to uh, decay which would, again, indicate an immediate death, which would have happened in a flood. Um, and another factor uh, with the flood is with all of the fountains of the great deep breaking up, as described in, in Genesis, one would think that there also would have been a lot of volcanic activity. And so you throw heat and pressure into the equation with that, and the, the conditions would have been perfect for rapid formation of Tons and tons and tons of fossils. That's right. And I think you mentioned that too. That's a good point. When you talk about the fountains of the deep, you know, even recently they've discovered uh, these great reservoirs uh, essentially under the crust, under the earth's crust. And so uh, when you talk about the fountains of deep, I think that's what it's referring to. It's referring to these uh, reservoirs uh, that are under the earth's crust. And so Water was pouring down from below and from above, it seems to be turning flood. Right. So you have uh, both those things. So again, that uh, really confirms what the Bible said about the fountains of the deep that we're finding now, even uh, just recently, that these things are accurate. Absolutely. So what about erosion? Uh, we've already mentioned the Grand Canyon and uh, the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, evolutionist uniformitarianism would say that that Colorado River over millions and millions and millions of years slowly carved out through erosion the Grand Canyon. I've actually been to the Grand Canyon last year, and one of the things that I immediately noticed when I looked at that grand expanse of a canyon, all the little nooks and crannies of this canyon, there are literally probably millions of them, all kinds of different directions. It doesn't make sense to me at all that one river would form an immense canyon like that in all these different sprouting directions when you have one free-flowing river. Yeah, that's right. I think, obviously, you have to have a, a larger body of water to be in a sort of a carving of the landscape. And it's truly remarkable to see all of those various inlets of the canyon and uh, to attribute all of that to a really a very, uh, uh, I guess you would describe it as a, uh, well, tiny river by comparison. Right. Uh, you know, at one stage, uh, if uh, that's caused by water erosion, then there had to have been a larger body of water involved. Right. Uh, certainly that's the case. And when you've got high pressure from flooding, of course, high pressure from flooding can cause uh, very quick, uh, you know, erosion. So it can create erosion very quickly. It doesn't take really a great deal of time if you've got a large body of water, which of course uh, pushes a lot of pressure upon the landscape and uh, can carve uh, great niches out of uh, the land very quickly. And we see that even today when uh, places are hit by a flood, how uh, it destroys coastlands and uh, pulls away huge chunks of rock. Right. Uh, so this is not something that has to take millions of years if you've got a large body of water. And clearly you had a large body of water. 
have done all that. Uh, so it just the remnant, I guess, of those Right, and it all kind of funneled or drained into that that basin of an area there. Um, a good example of of how quickly water can destroy land and completely just erode it away would be that Oroville Dam that burst in California a couple of years ago, and that in a matter of days, uh, not months, not years, days, it carved out quite a bit of the land that was around that dam that burst. So that's a, an example our, our listeners may want to look into. Another example that doesn't deal with water, but something similar, uh, lava, which uh, probably would have most likely been involved in the flood as well with those fountains breaking open. Um, the the Mount St. Helens, uh, a canyon was essentially formed when Mount St. Helens erupted from lava in a matter of days as well. and stop right there for this discussion for this week and lord willing next week we will continue this discussion with brett rutherford on evidence for noah's flood thank you for listening to this podcast from the scattered abroad network if you would like to email us you can do so at the scattered abroad network at gmail.com that's the scattered abroad network at gmail.com Remember, you can check the show notes below for all of our social media platform links. Also, don't forget that you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and please leave us a rating or review. We hope and pray that this has helped you grow closer to Christ, even though we are scattered abroad. May God bless you.